All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today and letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to episode 282, or is it 83? I'm, there's another episode that might come out before this, might come out <laughs> afterwards. I can't remember what numbering I'm up to. Just another number. Welcome to the Kiss FAQ Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill, admin on the Kiss FAQ message board. Today, I am joined by Michael Cavagini. Hey, everyone. Lonnie. Hello again, everybody. And Ken, for a discussion Hello. of the new Kiss book, Take it off our review, mm-hmm. and of course, um, oh yeah, there'll be a interview with the author Greg Prado tacked on at the end of this. So you have a little fast forward button if you don't want to hear us pontificate about it. You can fast forward until you see Greg's face pop up, and it's a video interview. For those of you listening on iTunes, that's all irrelevant. But most of my introductions to episodes are. There we go. Uh, anyone got any new Kiss stuff lately? Uh, oh, it's coming today. I got mine today. Oh, for today. Yeah, my, oh, okay, my yeah. hot in the shade. Same my thing. hot in the shade and hotter than hell came the other day. Yep. So got my T-shirt. I think it's actually pretty cool. Um, Did you get the vinyl too with it? No, I got the vinyl. Oh, okay. Vinyl. Yeah, I have the vinyl. I got the vinyl for both of them. I have both vinyls coming in and with the two T-shirts also. So. And apparently, I have a fairy godmother who sent me a stack of pics from yeah. the Kiss Cruise. <laughs> So some very cool ones. Very Thank nice. you very much, Fairy Godmother. I appreciate oh, it. Eric Singer one. I don't know if you can see the back. Um, oh. And then they did a did an alternate gray pick. So like uh, I don't know what you call it. Remember the blood cards with the trading stuff and all that. So thank you. That was a very nice, nice surprise in my mailbox, and I will instant message you shortly thanking you in person. Um, so as I mentioned, we are going to be talking about the book. Take it off. And it's currently the first book to focus on Kiss's non-makeup era. <laughs> Just to be snarky and get that oh. out of my system. What was it? Uh, <laughs> Um, but I, I want to just start off with overall opinions of this book, and then I'm going to go section by section, the highs and lows. Uh, Michael, obviously, if you have any, you know, well thought out questions for us as well, throw them all in, you know, everyone, because uh, again, as I sound awful, I actually feel awful, and I am not on my game today, so bail me out if necessary. Uh, but obviously, this is the first real book to focus on the. Uh, non-makeup era of the band mine don't count mine are privately published they have no quality control whatsoever so this one's actually been proofread and hopefully all of the typos and grammatical errors corrected by someone who actually knew what they were doing i only had an artist who knew how to do good covers everything else forget about it um so the forward by chris jericho what were your guys' thoughts on that? Because I'm not a wrestling guy, so he meant nothing to me. What I did enjoy was that his perspective mirrored my own entry as a fan, so I thought that was kind of cool. Michael, let's start with you. Sure, and I'm a wrestling fan. So, um, as you know, I like do DDP yoga and uh, Diamond Dallas Page is friends with Chris. So when I saw Chris Jericho's name in the book, I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. To me, that kind of gave it 
like legitimacy like immediately because I thought, wow, he got a really important person. Because right now Chris Jericho is like the AEW world champion. Like he's more popular than he's probably been ever. Um, so that was a really big get. And I know he got it through Bruce Kulik. Uh, but regardless, it's, I think it's a great way to kind of set the tone for the book that you get, you know, literally probably the most passionate celebrity about Kiss 80s music out there uh, to talk about it right from the beginning of the book. So I thought it was a, he honestly couldn't have gotten anyone better. Like maybe a 1980s wrestler? <laughs> like Hulk Hogan or uh, Flair or something. Rowdy, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Most of them are dead too. The eighties wrestlers. <laughs> Brutus the Beefcake. Uh, God, who, who else was there? Uh, Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Andre the Giant. Yeah. How many I of them actually listen to? Yeah, I don't think any of them listen to Kiss. Um, Ken, your thoughts on Chris Jericho and his forward? Yeah, I mean it was good. I, I don't, I don't look at him as a. A wrestler. I know he's a wrestler, or was a wrestler. Uh, but you know, it makes no difference to me. He's a he's a Kiss fan, and he came in at a, a certain era, and you know, seeing the uh, uh, what is it, the Heaven's on Fire video with Paul jumping through the fire hoop, and he thought that was like the coolest thing ever. So um, yeah, he came in at that period, and I think you know, that's his his time. Uh, he enjoyed that. Of course, he he likes he went back and to the prior catalog and and, and uh, after you know the non makeup stuff, he went back and and enjoyed the the, the regular makeup stuff too. So um, yeah, it's it's a good nice good starting to the book and uh, you know another fan, which he is, fan's perspective of of Kiss in that era. So. That's yeah, good. you mentioned you mentioned the flaming hoop, which of course my moment yeah. with Asylum was Bruce falling backwards into the water, the uh, Paul <laughs> right. Stanley swinging on a vine with a volcano, and of course the girls pushing the twins pushing the bed. So I mean, very similar mm -hmm. to you know kind of those videos catching people's attention in the mid '80s. No matter what people say about the music, they were on rotation quite a lot. Lonnie, your thoughts on it? I thought it was really. A great get like you guys said and everybody has their entry point and their starting point into the band and it always interests me of where people came in you know you have guys like ken who came in with with rock and roll over and, and julian with asylum and, and and me where i i liked him as a kid and i really jumped on the kiss train when revenge came out and chris is chris talks about how he was aware of the band you know and knew that they were the makeup and he really kind of felt like the makeup was was outdated and and that and i kind of mirrored that same image when when i was a kid that i was more interested in who the band was now in the in the 80s into the 90s and then who they were in the past like yeah i knew they were the makeup back then but i was more interested in the band of what they were in the 80s and and 90s so i thought it was it was a really interesting read um from you know, one one of the biggest kiss, you know, like you guys have said, one of the biggest '80s Kiss fans out there. Just to read his entry point and how passionate he was about them, it really it mirrors not only my image, my feelings to, toward the band, but a lot of people who grew up in the '80s, their feelings toward the band as well. So I, I thought it was a great way to start off the book. 
So we're going to be giving away two copies of this book uh, during this episode, and you'll have to listen on to find out how to get a freebie. Um, it's open to anyone in the world, by the way. I will ship this internationally. It's, you know, it's pretty girthy, uh, but, you know, you guys shouldn't be punished for living elsewhere. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the general structure of the book. You know, it, each section has an album overview a history section, and then interviews and commentary, and it, it sort of, um, you know, it sort of follows that, and, you know, it, it's become a kind of the way a lot of people do these books. I think Ken Sharps have uh, done similar in, you know, taking uh, quotes from famous people about particular topics and then gathering them all together and then mixing it with stuff. So how, how did that format kind of work for you, um, taking it away from the purely narrative-driven writing that many people try and do and, let me flash it again, and fail miserably at? No. Uh, <laughs> It's it's out of print, so I can uh, now wave it around freely because I'm not advertising myself. Um, Michael, as a writer of uh, you know and an interviewer, you're probably the best equipped to really uh, kind of approach that with some of the work that you've done on your own. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah. So a um, few things. I like the how it's chronological. It's out of my album. I like how he included things that I didn't expect. Like he included smashes, thrashes, and hits. He included kiss my ass. He included uh, things like that where I was like, oh, that's cool. I, I didn't expect that. You know, even a live three. I mean, he didn't. He could have said I'm sticking with just studio albums, but he decided to include those things. So I thought that was cool. As for the content of each chapter, I actually wanted to hear more from him and less from the people he interviewed, because just when he was getting going, it was like, okay, now let's talk to Eddie Trunk, and I'm like, really? I, like I, I care more about. I just want to read a book. I care more about the author's point of view than other people, unless it's being pitched as a collection of interviews. Um, and that leads me to my next point, which is Eddie Trunk, which a lot of people hate him, uh, especially people who um, support their current lineup. And in the middle of the end of the road tour, I just it's just my opinion. I'm not trying to be too mean here, but I think it was a poor choice to have him so heavily featured in this book. I think he's even a pull quote on the back. Um, I just think that was a mistake because then you're going to turn off a bunch of people who are not going to buy it or open it because of that, um, which is a shame because there's good stuff in here. But I think he's such a polarizing figure that it kind of cripples sales with a certain segment of the population because they hate him so much. Yeah, that that was going to be one of my next questions. But, uh, you know, Lonnie, what do you think about the overall structure of the book. I like the format um, where you kept hearing for some different perspectives and I, I think it kept it fresh as the book kept going to hear different voices um, throughout. I will agree with Michael though that I did, I wish the author would have had more say than just a few pages on each album then we threw it to somebody else. Like, Give me more of that historical background of the album from the author's point of view. Um, cause I, I was really interested cause the, the book itself is just, is just so interesting in the fact that it's a full book about that time frame. and just give me, give me more historical facts about that time frame because it's such, it's such a time frame that the band just glosses over and pretends like n it never existed. They re they really do. I, I mean, they're, yeah, they're playing lick it up on the tour and the other playing heavens on fire on the tour, but for the most part, they really and they're, they're playing Crazy Nights actually now too. But for the most part, they do gloss over this time frame. 
not only in the live shows, but in but in Gene's book and Paul's book, you know, the, the least amount of of girth to steal a word from Julian in the in the book is about this time frame. So I was really int- intrigued by it. Number one, just because it's special to me and as as special as to a lot of people. So I was looking for more of historical facts and how the, how each record came together. But I did like how it kept it fresh with with different perspectives. Like like I just found when I was on analyzing like okay well am I getting heard from Eddie Trunk now? No, it's Richard Christie from the Howard Stern Show. How fun is that? I thought that was fantastic. Hmm. Um, so things like that really kept kept the book interesting and kept it fresh throughout. So I I did enjoy that. Yeah, Lonnie. For the rest of this episode, can you please say give me more? not give me more that this is going to be an 80s themed <laughs> episode <laughs> get your song titles correct pardon the hell out of me yeah now drink your beer Ken, your thoughts yeah i mean i, I do like uh yeah that's why i was hoping that it would kind of follow a chronological order um i mean even like even lay down the the groundwork a little bit of you know where kiss was at that time uh with at the beginning where you know they're kind of just coming off of the failure of creatures and and the, and that tour and then you know the lick it up album happens and and they pick up vinnie vincent and and so on um and going through the years and yeah i find it interesting some of the people that i've never which is good that i've never been interviewed or i haven't seen interviews with them um some different people um, like what Lonnie said, you know, the, from Howard Stern or so, or something like that, anything, um, besides the usual people we always hear from, um, and, and interviews would go, okay, yeah, yeah, I know that. But I, I was hearing things, other things about the music and, and the albums and maybe in the touring that I'd never heard before, or there was some points in there that, oh, shoot, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like, a there are, you know, these little, uh, eggs of whatever you want to call them, um, Easter eggs in there that minutia, minutia, yeah, yeah. steal yeah. a word again, minutia, Easter eggs uh, that are like, oh, I was like, well, I was like, whoa, wow, I didn't know that, you know, that was that's interesting. So, um, yeah, it was cool, and, and I like the order, and I like how they throw in bits of other parts, and you know, they talk about some of the movies that Gene has starred in, and other stuff. That was going on, not not just the albums and yeah. tour, but some other stuff about solo stuff going on, and maybe Paul solo solo tour and things yeah. like that were thrown in there too, which was really good. Yeah, I think Michael covered, you know, kind of the elephant in this room, and that is Eddie Trunk's involvement in this because he's such <laughs> a divisive uh, figure. Unfortunately, I, I actually do like him, and it's not just because he mentions my books and name on air. Thank you, Eddie. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Sure no. Well, you, you know, I, I have to put that out there as a caveat, because obviously he is very supportive of KISS projects out there, and has always been. And I've never asked him to uh, mention any of my books, but he mentioned the Def Leppard one, and I just said, hey, do you want a copy of the book? Yeah. You know, there was... No quid pro quo in this arrangement, um, but there are there are people who very much don't like him and are going to be turned off by that. So I thought it was a brave decision of Greg to actually use him um, as heavily as he does rely on him in this book. But I also think the same goes for Kurt Gooch, who's a very divisive figure on Facebook uh, for anyone who's on there. 
uh, will know, and there's no hiding, uh, you know, from it. You know, I've known Kurt for many years. I won't say we're friends, um, but he he does have a reputation now online of basically attacking people for incorrect information and opinions. But that being said, I thought the contributions Eddie made were very valid. For someone who was working in the music industry in the mid-1980s, he was well-placed to comment on this part of the band's history. And having been a fan through the makeup into their transition out of makeup and working with Ace, I, you know, I thought he comes in with a unique perspective and a very broad um, kind of knowledge of music from that period as well. So on the one hand, I know people are going to hate him that he's involved. On the other hand... He didn't turn it all into one of the biggest complaints about him is he didn't turn it into being about himself. He actually right. was very focused on the topics at hand. Um, and the same goes for Kurt. You know, I sent Kurt a PM. I said, those are really nice, tight and concise tour overviews that you contributed to the book. They were just full of, you know, enough information and new information and well-presented information that I, I thought it was a, a massive, a massive success. So, um, Lonnie, Ed, Eddie and Kurt, your thoughts. Um, I agree. They are, they are divisive characters, both one online, I guess online for both of them. Um, I enjoy Eddie's perspective. I know he's divisive because he's not supportive of the current lineup and, you know, many Kiss fans. If you're not supportive of the current line, if you're not supportive of the current lineup, they attack you, and they don't want you know your your opinion just flat out doesn't matter. And I like the current lineup. Don't get me wrong, but I think everybody is entitled to their opinion in this day and in this day and age that we live in. You know, every everything we're supposed to be an age of acceptance, and everything's okay. So you know, Eddie can have his opinion, but the show isn't about Eddie Trunk and his opinions. So I don't I don't have a problem with him being involved. I really truly don't because that's who he is. He has his opinions and he's he's a big fan of the band in that era and that's why he's featured in the book is because he feels strongly about that era. Kurt Kurt did a lot of research for the band and a lot of research on touring. So he's a he's an informed opinion. So him being included in there doesn't really bother me either because, I mean, he wrote, he wrote the book that many people consider gospel of, of Kiss's touring history. So he's a, he's a great get to have in there as far as knowledge. He's a wealth of knowledge of their touring history. When you, know, you go through album by album, okay, well, let's go to Kurt Gooch, and he's going to give us a couple of pages about this album's tour. So I think it's, it's a well-informed guest in the book so i really i really don't have a problem with either one of them i i truly don't so you're still gonna buy a copy of the book oh gosh yeah <laughs> no and i do have to thank steve for providing us with uh yes, copies of the book and also yes. for providing us two books to give away to folk today on this episode ken your thoughts on uh you know both current and and any more you want to say about eddie yeah, Eddie's, you know, I had no problem with it. Yeah, I know he's a divisive uh, character, but I have no real problem with him. Um, uh, everyone has their opinion, you know. And, and then as far as Kurt Gooch, yeah, no, nothing nothing wrong there. And I, I, I liked his little concert mm -hmm. uh, updates, you know. 
uh, after kind of the end of each of these album sections, uh, you know, they talk about what was going on in the tour. He he does, um, and it was it was interesting, and it was cool. I think there was actually a couple of things in there that I thought, oh, that were new to me that I didn't know. So, yeah, yeah, no problems with it. Yeah, and they and they weren't uh, bludgeoned. Uh, you've already said a lot about Eddie, uh, Michael. Any thoughts on Kurt? <laughs> Um, so obviously the Kurt's book, um, you know, uh, Kiss Alive Forever is great. Um, and I, I enjoyed what he contributed to this book. I thought it was useful because it's kind of his area of expertise. Um, yeah, Facebook's another issue, but, uh, for the purposes of this book, I felt like it was fine. And for a person who's not on social media, I feel like I wouldn't be aware of that side of him. Um, so... You know, if you only know him because of that book, then you won't be disappointed with this one, uh, with his contributions. Exactly. And if you only know him because of Kiss Alive Forever, make sure you do check out Larry Harris's uh, book, which uh, Kurt and Jeff both contributed to as well, to bring a, a really good story of the history of Casablanca. Um, let's jump into the albums. You know, the, the book's broken up into section album by album. Starts with Lick It Up. Um, and again, here, here's where I just don't get it. Keith Roth, Ozzy's Boneyard, and Hair Nation. I don't have Sirius, so that didn't mean anything to me, uh, who, who this person was writing mm -hmm. uh, about Lick It Up. Um, but then you get into the actual kind of I, i'm gonna call them vignettes for want of a better term because he he uh talks about you know the kiss unmasking masking and um has quotes from mtv vjs like nina blackwood and alan hunter and then contemporary rockers joe elliott warren d martini rick emmett from triumph um and photographer mark weiss talking about it but i love the quotes from you know the kind of the off the wall people about Kiss taking off the makeup. Ann Wilson, yeah. put it back on. Um, Bruce, Vinny didn't look like he belonged. Um, and Getty Lee, well, I already knew what they looked like, you know. And, you know, again, another good one was Lita Ford. People didn't care. They just loved music, you know. So, mm -hmm. you know, what, what are your thoughts on Lick It Up and the high points, low points of that coverage? Michael, let's start back with you. Yeah, so, um, I mean, so Lick It Up for me is... I feel like it's an album that I've become I've come to appreciate more over time where it didn't necessarily grab me at first. So I feel like the more I read about it, like in this book, uh, or the more I listen to it, uh, the more I appreciate it. Um, and I one thing I like right from the outset is that, you know, it tells you immediately, you know, uh, album information, where things charted, you know, who wrote songs. You know, that's nice to have uh, right up front. Um, and then... Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of time spent on this, but for good reason, because it was more than an album, right? It was taking the makeup off. It was like a really important moment in the band's history. And you're right. I didn't know who Keith Roth it was either. That didn't really mean much to me. Um, but I did like all the other people weighing in um, with that information and current section about... Um, the tour was interesting, too, because I feel like the Creatures tour obviously gets a lot of attention from KISS fans because of its brevity. Um, so it was interesting to uh, get some information from him about it. But I really do like, I think the best part about that is just all the people weighing in, Lita Ford and Phil Collin. And um, Bruce obviously weighs in a lot throughout this book, and I really like his contributions um, throughout the entire book. I always think his thoughts are interesting. 
because he was so intimately involved with everything the band did during this era. So anytime I'd see his name pop up, I would get excited because I'm like, oh, great, more interesting insights from Bruce. Yeah, you know, there's a good sprinkling of Kulik all throughout here. You know, Lick It Up, though, I, I felt really needed an interview from Michael James Jackson. And with him coming back mm. onto the scene, I thought mm. that would have been kind of the marquee one. Lonnie, what were your thoughts on Lick It Up? Um, I knew who Keith Roth was because he's I was a serious um, subscriber for quite a while. So I did know who he was. Um, so I, I actually enjoyed hearing from him because he's um, a DJ on on um, Hair Nation and that. So I, you know, growing up in the 80s, I would listen to a lot of Hair Nation when I had Sirius. So I, I knew the name immediately. So um, I, I I thought hearing from him was good. And, you know, I, I, I enjoyed how much covered, how much coverage that you guys mentioned, how much coverage was spent on Lick It Up. Because like you guys said, it was more than just the album. It was the taking up the makeup. It was such a big step for the band and how much attention is put on play, taking the makeup off. And how significant that really was um, to the band, to MTV, and to music in general in 1983. Uh, I'll agree with Michael, too, that I like that they just present the album up front with, with some historical facts. You can read that before you go into the and start reading more on the album. I just kind of give you a broad overview of the album before you start diving into it. So um, I, I thought the, the coverage on Look It Up was good, but I... I agree with you, Julian. I really like the end when you heard all these different people's perspectives about how they thought it was great that they took the makeup off, or then you hear the opposite that it was stupid. Why did why did you take it off? So, and, and I think that was a lot of the public's response at the time. So I I thought that was that was very interesting. Yeah, Ken. Yeah, I I liked all the uh, little extra deals about the uh, the makeup coming off, but yeah, I think I enjoyed the MTV VJ stuff even more i mean the one thing where he said that uh jj jackson he was real nervous about it which is surprising to me as a why he was so nervous and then the, i guess the whole the other thing about all the M people that was working at working in the building mtv came came down from whatever other office floor and they all wanted to see it they and that never something like that never happens i guess you know or would happen there so I find that to be interesting, especially from MTV, who didn't give a crap about Kiss at that time period, really. Seriously, they really didn't. Um, they didn't play anything. I think they only had the one VOL, and there's reasons for that. But I still think they didn't give a crap about them. But after the makeup came off, that's when they started playing their videos. You know, in the non-makeup era, they played their videos quite a bit, actually. So. Yeah, how could they give a crap about them with bands like Rat, you know, Round and Round, Twisted Sister, Wasp, Motley Crue. Twisted you know, Sister, definitely, you know, yeah. You know, it was, the, it was a new generation, and these were the old bands. I mean, did you see Aerosmith's lightning strikes in rotation? No. Did you no. see much of Rush in rotation? No. no. Did you see much Judas Priest? Uh, probably of the older bands, quite a yeah. bit more of them. Mm -hmm. So... Take us into Animalize, Ken, because, you know, I thought Mitch Weissman gave a great interview, mm -hmm. one of one of the best ones in this book. Um, I also love the misogyny and metal feature from Catherine yeah. Turman. I thought that was really something quirky and something different, uh, similar to how James Campion approached Destroyer, something off the wall that really made you refocus on it. What were your thoughts on that? Um, 
Yeah, I thought the Animalize section was really good, actually. Um, for an album that doesn't get a lot of love, you know. Um, though I think I like it better. As, it, as I get older, I think I like that album more and more now uh, than I used to. Um, and Mitch Weissman is, is a good person to have as an interviewee because he was there and he helped at the time and he was hanging out with him um, and, you know, writing with Gene and so on. So um, I think that section was really, really, really good. Uh, I, I probably picked up a couple of new, you know, gems in there, too, of Minutia. Um, I think actually the whole book is actually has a lot of that in there. So I think for people that think that they know it all or have heard it all, you haven't because there's a lot of new stuff in here. But the animalized section was really good. Excellent. Lonnie? I, I agree. I think the animalized section was actually my favorite part of the whole book. Um, Mitch Wiseman's interview was really, really informative. And I, as much as I feel like I know, I learned a lot reading Mitch's interview. It was really in-depth of how close he was to the band at the time and how involved he was in in the in the recording process of Animalize. And then, like I'm, as I mentioned earlier, the Richard Christie interview I thought was really great as well because I'm a, I mentioned I had Sirius, you know, several years ago, and, and the only reason I had Sirius is you know I got it in 06 when Stern launched. I was like I gotta have I gotta have Howard, so you know I, I had it for a really long time before, and then in my this isn't a Howard Stern podcast, but when Artie left it, what show, in my opinion, went downhill. But that's another podcast. But so hearing from Richard Christie, I thought was was fantastic. And I was I, like, I turned the page and like, know the score, Richard Christie. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's awesome. So like here, and, and you know, Richard just loves Kiss, and Richard, yeah, you know, Richard Christie, he, he just loves everything. So, but to hear him talk about how he got into Kiss and what animal, what animalized meant to him, you know, because like we talk on the show about how what asylum means to julian and what like revenge means to me and like rock, rock and roll over means to ken because that was his introduction to him so to hear like what what is it rock and roll over your introduction well it was alive too but that's pardon the hell out of me um it was your first album was alive too but you you first heard i want you as the first kiss song you ever heard was on that's, that's correct see that's i cool. pay attention when i'm not talking and <laughs> so to hear everyone, to hear Richard's perspective on animal, it's like well, what a what a cool, inter, you know that that he loves animal eyes. So, again, going back to like what Chris Jericho said in the beginning, everybody has their introduction to the band. So I thought that was that was really, really great as well. So like, I animal is my favorite section of the whole book, and it's not my favorite album, but it was my favorite section of the book. Yeah, my notes next to Richard Christie. No idea who he was. Howard Stern writer. <laughs> Again, you don't know since, who since I don't know who he was, I didn't care what he thought. Um, I think I'll have to go back and read that. Michael, uh, what were your thoughts on Animalize? Yeah, so uh, I agree that um, yeah, Animalize is not my favorite. It's probably one of my least favorite albums. But I think that when you read more about something that you may not necessarily appreciate, uh, it builds your appreciation for it because it gives you a greater understanding of what went into it. It's kind of like a behind-the-scenes uh, feature for a movie or something. Um, and I, I enjoy those kinds of things, like what goes into the making of something, uh, even if it's misunderstood or maybe you don't necessarily like it as much as you would hope you 
would. Um, so for me, I think, yeah, Mitch Weissman is a great person because the songs could get a lot of attention. They're usually Gene songs because people are like, oh, my God, there's lyrics, right? So why not talk to the guy who co-wrote them with them? Because that's a heck of a lot more interesting than Paul Stanley, uh, who we know typically always writes great songs. Um, so it's actually more interesting to look at these other songs and say, okay, how did these come to be? And I think the misogyny in metal part was really fascinating, too, because I, sociology was my minor in college, so I always find uh, those types of things fascinating. And it's kind of cool that he took an approach that I think most people wouldn't even consider um, and talking to someone about that. Because, you know, I think all of us kind of like joke around and go, oh, my God, can you believe how like ridiculous that is, especially in today's age? And he thought, hmm, maybe I can do something with that and spoke with someone who provided some insight about it. So I thought that was a really cool way to kind of, uh, you know, kind of the side conversation and introduce something new um, to the discussion of this album that, I, as far as I know, hasn't really been brought up before in great detail. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's motivated me enough that I'm going to pick up a copy of uh, her Louder Than Hell book um, just because I want to read more on kind of that look into that music that was such a big part of my teen years. You know, so, you know, anything that's quirky and off the wall kind of grabs my attention these days, um, you know, and it was humorous. Unlike, you know, it's not like the NPR stuff. Um, it, it, it was actually very well written and entertaining. I think the big missing part of Animal Eyes is kind of Desmond Child, and he's tough to get, really tough. But uh, this would have been a great kind of area to focus on him because obviously, you know, he he did co-write, you know, some of, well, the best songs on the album, Under the Gun, I've Had Enough, Heaven's on Fire, um, with Paul. So that would be kind of my only criticism of, of this one, you know, Michael James Jackson for for Lick It Up, Desmond Child for Animal Eyes, and then we move into one that's kind of, I, I think this one's a total cheat to include, the 1985 reissue of Creatures of Night, because that's just a great way to drop, you know, yeah. a, a makeup album back into it. Um, but still, I loved how he worked Ron Keel in to this section of the book, you know, and working with Gene from the artist perspective and Gene's acting career. Uh, Wednesday 13, I actually liked that. I mean, I have no idea who Wednesday 13 is. I don't think I've ever heard a Murder Doll song, but I liked his perspective because I was just a little bit, again, like Jericho, I was a little bit older than that, and it was a parallel to my story. I'm like, so, you know, what is it, a common theme for us who became fans in the 80s? You know, Jericho. Same Wednesday 13, the same, but I thought getting Steve Ferris in there and I've read interviews with him before detailing it, but it's nice to have it in, in a book. Ken, your thoughts on creatures 85. Yeah. Um, creatures 85. Yeah. That was an interesting section. And like you said, the Steve Ferris, uh, interview was really interesting about, uh, him trying out, you know, uh, going there and trying out and, and just saying that, you know, here, just, you know, do a solo on this song kind of thing. And, and you know, they're looking for a guitarist. Kiss is looking for a guitarist. And, you know, they'll, they'll give you a call back or whatever. Um, and it turns out that what he nailed that solo, I think, in a second, I think second take or something like that, um, which is pretty darn amazing. Um, and I think the only, I can't remember the reason why they didn't pick him, what he said, but... Um, 
you know, it was really good. A lot of, again, more minutia there as part of that. Um, but it was interesting that they even just talked about creatures at all, um, considering that it was really just the prior uh, with makeup album. But it, yeah, it became a non makeup when when Casablanca or Polygram, I guess, at that point, um, tried to make money off of their uh, success of Animal Ice. So, yeah, it was good. Yeah, and the songs obviously were a major part of the set in the 1980s from that album. So True. It kind of makes sense. Michael, your thoughts on Creatures? Yeah, I think it was cool that it included it. Um, it I mean, musically it makes sense, right? Creatures is kind of the return to rock. Uh, and Lick It Up is kind of like the sequel. And Animal Eyes kind of continued that sound just in its own way. So, I mean, it was kind of, it makes sense sonically to include it, and he found a creative way to drop it in there. Um, I do think the interview with Steve Ferris is pretty cool, because anytime you can talk to someone other than Ace Frehley about auditioning for Kiss, um, or, you know, Bob Kulick, uh, I think it's uh, an interesting discussion, because it's just one of the lesser known auditions, I think, for Kiss. Um, so it's good to, to get that insight. And I actually really like the Gene section about his, uh, you know, producing other artists, about uh, his movie career, because to me that is just fascinating, you know, because these things did happen at this time period. So, hey, let's explore it, you know. And uh, to me it's just kind of like added content beyond what is expected when you buy this book. You know, it, it's just additional value. So as a fan, I think it's just like, you know, it's the cherry on top. Yep. Lana, your thoughts on the value-added content? Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that, that Creatures 85 was included. I was a little bit like, when I, when I flipped from Animal Eyes, I was expecting to read about Asylum, and I was like, oh, we're doing this. Okay. So I was I was a little taken back by it, but like you guys said, I was the Steve Ferris interview I thought was was fascinating. I, I, learned, a, I learned a great deal. Um reading that and I did enjoy you know the, the gene stuff at the end of, of the chapter because it, it gave it gave you an overview of how busy Gene was outside of the band in the 80s with all these movies and, and TV shows at Miami Vice that he was involved in at the time and how you know you read that and you're like wow Paul Stanley really did take the reins in this time frame because it shows how Gene was really interested in outside things. So I, I think that part of it was really informative, you know, to, you know, we, we all know Gene was doing movies, but to read about, about those all at once, like, Oh, wow. You know, Paul's not, you know, patting himself on the back in his book that, you know, Paul really was to, taking the reins because Gene really did have a lot going on outside of the band. So I thought that was an interesting part of the chapter, but I don't know. At the same time, I'm kind of like, I don't know. The record company just released that on its own. Kiss really didn't just say, hey, let's re-release Kiss. Let's yeah. re-release Creatures with a different cover. The record company kind of did that on their own. So mm-hmm. I was surprised that that was, that was even included, to be honest. Yeah. But I, I do like the the, con- the concept of value added. That's what it did for mm-hmm. that, you know. It's like a bonus item. You know, you get to work mm-hmm. it in. And again, for the people like me who became a fan at that time, I didn't know about that blue makeup cover immediately oh really that, that was my album cover for creatures oh. the one that came out in 85 because wow. that was the only one that was in stores the only one that mm-hmm. i saw mm-hmm. so, so i went for a long time yeah so i in, in binghamton i didn't know about the blue cover and it you know once i did then that became like oh ooh. 
you know, <laughs> gotta, gotta find that. So, uh, you know, kind of, kind of neat, very eighties. Um, let's move on into asylum and this could be a whole book for me, obviously. Um, so it was just too damn short, this part of the book. No, um, you know, I, I thought it covered it well. Um, Jean Beauvoir. Um, again, he, he's the cat who's involved in that, that era, um, co-writing, playing bass and, and whatnot. Brent, Brett Fitz, Brent Fitz, pardon me. Um, not too, so sure about that. K.K. Downing, I was a little bit apprehensive about what, where he was going to go, having just read his unfortunate book. Um, but I thought it was very interesting, his look uh, from the perspective of the image changes that many bands uh, undertook in the mid-80s. You know, Wasp went from leather into the electric circus, Twist's sister. Uh, Judas Priest, of course, was transforming into the turbo era. Um, Aerosmith, well, no, they didn't really change until later but I, I thought it was a useful contribution what i think you were, i'm getting out of this book is it really is a potpourri of the 80s you know just a whole bunch of different things that aren't necessarily thrown on the wall to see what sticks ken asylum yeah asylum, another good section um yeah and i like i think the best part is the john pouvoir uh area with him you know writing songs with paul um hanging out with paul and then even when he's in the studio and recording some of his bass tracks. And even if, even when Gene was there, he did it. And, and Gene says, yeah, that's good. You know, and just, you know, he, Gene didn't feel threatened or anything about by it. Just, yeah, it's a, you did a great job on that bass, bass part of the song and, you know, let's keep it. And so it, it's really a, a, a a great section. I mean, Asylum is another one of those albums that uh, I guess kind of continued the the momentum uh, from Animal Eyes into Asylum. Um, I know we'll we'll talk about Crazy Nights, but um, I think that it was a real good section. And then oh, uh, Brent Fitz, right? Um, Gene's uh, solo band drummer, or and uh, you know it was good his perspective about how you know what he thought about the band at the time too. So that was good. Yep. Token Canadian representation. Well done. Uh, Michael. Uh, to me, the most interesting part of the asylum uh, is probably the part by Kurt, uh, mainly because the tour amongst fans is something that's discussed a lot, mainly because there's not a lot of pro shot footage or maybe mm. none. <laughs> I think it's always up for debate. Um, and I think that because of that, because that tour, kind of like the Creatures tour, gets a lot of attention. I think it's nice to explore that. And I appreciate that Kurt took the time to do that in this chapter. Uh, Cause I think that, that for hardcore fans is an important part of asylum. It's not just about the album. It is about that tour. Um, so I like that they took the time to include that portion. I think that was, uh, uh, you know, a good representation of that era, uh, you know, just having, um, you know, the album as well as the tour. Yep, excellent. Um, and I think the answer to your question about pro shot footage is there's less than five minutes that was shot by Howard Marks for advertising. And I know Kurt did share some of that when he was promoting some of his auctions. It was very cool. And it just made me wish for a full pro shot or several of them so that, that a multicam could be created. Because uh, that was the, I think that was nearly the biggest the logo got. And I love the costumes oh, yeah. and the yeah. stage with the stairs yeah. on the sides. So, Lonnie, Asylum. Yeah, I 
I disagree with you, Julian. I enjoyed the the Brent Fence interview. Um, with Brent's playing with with Slash, that's how that's how I originally became introduced with Brent. So I thought I thought that was a cool inclusion in the book. Um, and the Jean Bouvois was 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 really good as well, just because he was he was there, uh, with firsthand experience. And but I but I more so agree with Michael that. The Kurt stuff was the best because it is like the undocumented tour almost that there's really like you know, I said, there's really nothing. So it's I, I thought that that was the most intriguing to me because, you, you know, you, you can't go back to your, your pro shot asylum show and, and watch it after you, you hear someone talk about the tour. So maybe Julian can because he's wondering. But <laughs> No, order. I, no, I'm just I'm just looking up at my shelf in an unreleased Asylum tour show. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> sure. So anyway, I I thought Kurt's I, I agree with Michael though. The, the Kurt the Kurt was my the Kurt Gage stuff was my favorite part of the tour because it's really like the the unknown in my opinion. But I again with the Brent fencing it, I turn the page like, oh Brent Fence, really? That's cool. So it again, back to my original point about the book, it it kept me intrigued the whole time. Hearing hearing different voices throughout, I'm like oh now we're going to hear from from this guy. Oh that's that's kind of cool. So I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, it keeps it fresh. I mean, my mm-hmm. I if I'm going to criticize this section, um, I I think with the way Greg approached the rest of the book and having someone uh, writing about misogyny in music industry, it would have been a great section to have someone talking about the artwork and judging art with mm-hmm. your eyes over your ears, being something that the album really has suffered from within Kiss mm-hmm. Circles, you know, and, and the costuming. That really would have been a great area. Maybe I'm, I'm getting a little bit too cerebral on it um, in comparing mm-hmm. it with the, the other part um i also thought that you know every chapter starts off with the kind of synopsis of the album the songs the songwriters the singles mm-hmm. you know the overall details but i really th- felt that you know this is where it became obvious that it's too much focus on the uk and us you know that there were singles released off this in other markets uh, all night um Obviously, Tears Are Falling was the first single, then uh, All Night, and then, uh, of course, there was uh, Who Wants to Be Lonely, released in Japan. Going back to those kind of album summaries, I would have loved it to have more an international flavor, that um, the charts for every country, the singles where possible even if it became two pages and i don't know if they had a page budget that they were really trying to keep in but it it would have been nice to because the kiss army is worldwide canada and australia to represent all of that rather than just the kind of english-speaking non-canadian part of the world um so that's kind of my my thoughts there crazy nights yeah oh michael let's just start with you Sure. And, you know, when you mentioned the artwork for Asylum, it reminded me of something. So I interviewed Dennis uh, Wallach, and I think I talked to him for like two hours. It was something ridiculous. Uh, But it was awesome. Um, And uh, I think it was the longest interview I've ever done, which actually I I realized I just said that about another interview. Clearly I lied because Dennis was the longest. But what would have been cool is if he was in every chapter talking about the artwork, because think about how nice that would have been to have for each of these albums is his take on it. Because we know that with Crazy Nights, he had to change the concept and make it, you know, kind of dumb it down because I guess, well, I don't want to get into why, but um, and other things. 
so I think that would have been a really fascinating point of view to have for each of these albums, which unfortunately I guess that wasn't really considered. But for me, what I really enjoyed about this chapter, two things. One, Ron Nevison, because uh, I think it is interesting to get his take on how it was produced, because that's one of the biggest complaints fans have, is that it's so slickly produced. So, hey, let's talk to the guy who did that and hear what his thoughts are on it, because we know what Gene and Paul's thoughts are on it. Um, and I would hope that that Crazy Nights demo would eventually surface, because Paul keeps talking about, oh, it sounded so much bigger on the demo with people singing, you know. And it I'm has like, surfaced. Well, am I ever going to hear that? It's out there now. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, all right. I'll have to uh, find that. But the, um, the, the part that I really enjoyed the most on here was the demos section where Bruce talks about Sword in the Stone, which is a fantastic song, and a bunch of other ones. And I think that that is great because a lot of times those demos don't get the attention they deserve. Like when I interviewed Paul, I asked him about Sword and Stone. Um, but these are things that normally Gene and Paul will never talk about. So, hey, it's nice to at least get Bruce's take on them and kind of, you know, shine some light on them. So I really appreciated that was part of this. Yeah, I, I'm going to echo that, you know, comment about Bruce really shone, you know, a light on the demos, which are, are what I care about, particularly. Lonnie, your thoughts on Crazy Nights? Absolutely. I thought... Well, the Ron Nevison, it's, it's one of the more brief chapters in the book. And I thought the Ron Nevison stuff was cool because, as Michael said, well, where are you going to go to about the sound? Let's go straight to the source, the guy who produced the sound. But for me, I'm totally with you. The best part of that chapter is the Bruce Kulik stuff about the demos between Time Traveler and the Hydra Heart that should have been on the album and not waited until Hot in the Shade and Sword of the Stone, which is a great demo. Um, that to me was the most intriguing part of the chapter because I think there are as much as people like or don't like Crazy Nights there are some really good songs that could have been put on there to make it that much better but had it been produced the way people are critical of maybe they wouldn't care for those songs at all so it's a double edged sword Ken, Crazy Crazy Nights Crazy Crazy Nights yeah I remember when it came out um, the thing is what, what you know, Ron Nemison, I think I've heard some of those comments before um, that Ron Nemison was talking about that, you know, he'd like, he'd like to remix, you know, the album and bring up the guitars, you know, the guitars more and so on. Um, plus, the other part that I, I was kind of thinking about is, you know, Kiss kind of had a misstep there. I think they should have, even though they, they waited so long. When they would put an album one a year, they waited so long to put that album out just to wait for Ron Nevison. They could have put another album out in between there and still recorded one for the next year. Um, I, I just I think they lost their momentum after you know, uh, Lick It Up, Asylum, uh, you know, Through Asylum, and waiting that two year period and it and then wait for crazy nights to then to have that song that's too overly produced and you know and slick um i think i don't know i just when i was reading i was like man they they shouldn't have done that but anyway um but the, otherwise the interviews were great and then they have uh was it charlie from anthrax and it made me think of that that concert that i went to at the san francisco civic auditorium and it, it, yeah, it was it was the worst. The band was just going through the motion. It, it was the worst Kiss concert I I had ever seen, of all my Kiss concerts. Um, 
and uh, and I thought Anthrax did not fit even on the bill there. It, the, the music just didn't didn't match. It didn't go together with Kiss. So um, it was it was just to me it was it was an okay section. It was just enlightening to me that it started to make me think about my experiences uh, during that time period. Well, I'm going to have to raise my hand and admit utter jealousy of this section of the book because I tried to get Charlie for the Danger Zone book. I wanted mm-hmm. someone from Anthrax in there for to talk about the tour, the exact reasons why he's in here, and obviously uh, some of the stuff that they later did with the band. Um, I also tried to get someone from Kings of the Sun. That didn't work out either. It took two years to fall on my face. So I thought that was really cool. You know, I got to finally read the interview that I wanted to get for my own book and someone else's. <laughs> you know, so, so there you go. Um, but I, I think in this section, I would have liked to have seen something about the three videos specifically um, oh, yeah. because they were in such wide rotation or maybe something about the top of the pops. Um, you know, appearance, the only one they ever did um, would have been nice. And, you know, he does then later go into the videos. That's not omitted from this book. It's just not in this part. So maybe it makes more sense to have them all gathered together like they were. Um, Next section, of course, is smashes, thrashes, and hits. Mitch LaFon, troublemaker. Um, I thought this was another really good Bruce section. Nothing really earth-shattering about it. Um, I liked how it incorporated part of Paul's solo tour. Uh, but give me more. Eric Singer would have been a perfect interview in this area um, because he played on some of the demos in this period. He did the tour with Paul, and instead we get the rise of the Kiss conventions with Richie Rano, which is fantastic to get that documented because Richie was a major player back in that day on getting those, um, you know, the big ones going. There was New England's Kiss collector, uh, John and Karen Lizneski. Who, who were doing it as well, um, but the New York ones and those Kiss conventions, I mean, those those were utter legend uh, for me. So it's surprisingly a good section. And Mitch, good job on your part. Um, Ken, smashes. Yeah, uh, it's a good section. Um, I know Mitchell Fawn was talking about it, um, the section, and they talk about a little bit about the music and, and so on. Um, Bruce Kulik's always good, but then the, at the end of that section is the uh, Paul Stanley solo tour. Uh, the Kurt Gooch talks about it a little bit there. Um, so it was interesting about that, and of course the known thing about you know Eric Carr wanted to be in that solo band for that tour, and you know Paul Paul didn't I guess didn't want him, so you know you got Eric Singer, which then you know later on he joins the band. Um, so I, th- I thought that was really good. Um, there was another thing in here, too, and I can't remember now what it was. Oh, shoot, I forgot. But, you know, I, I guess it's about the, the actual songs that let's put the X and Sex and the uh, you make a rock hard kind of thing is was, you know, oh, I know it was. It was about, do you think, you know, it was a good idea for uh, Eric to sing Beth kind of thing. I think it was at Mitchell Fon, I think, said he, <laughs> He liked it. He thought it was good. Uh, where I think a lot of other people think it's, it's, you know, it wasn't a good idea. But yeah, it was, it was good. Smash the thrust is a hit. You have to cover it. Yeah, Mitch has a contrary opinion to the mainstream. Perish the thought, yeah. Michael. <laughs> uh, I kind of agree with all you guys. So um, 
for me, the, the, I came into Kiss late, right? For me, I think the first thing I bought was the box set, and then um, the first like new album for me was Kiss Symphony. So uh, hearing, I kind of missed out on a whole lot of stuff, including the original like Kiss conventions. So reading about that was pretty cool how it all started. Uh, I think, of course, Bruce talking about Smashers, Thrashes is another, because uh, again, this is kind of an album that gets dismissed by Gene and Paul. Like Paul's like, oh, those songs, the new songs are crap and doesn't really get into it. Um, so it's nice to kind of hear Bruce's take on it. Um, and then the Kiss Convention part was cool. And then also hearing about Paul's solo tour for me was interesting as well. So for me, those kind of the three most uh, compelling parts of that chapter. Yep. Lonnie, what beer are you drinking today? Um, I brought home some Yingling from when I was in Cincinnati. This is what I call bootleg beer here in St. Louis because I yeah. can't buy it here. But I'm going every, again next week, so I'll read Every, every time it goes by the screen, Bootlegger. I'm screaming in my head, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got I to gotta bootleg at home whenever I get Yeah, it. and then I remember you're a Bengals fan, so. You know, yeah, so then you got you that on me. So, anyway, I did enjoy the the, uh, the section on Smash Bros. It's like you guys said, it needed to be included it's a very vital part of their history. I mean, it's the album that did the best in the eighties as much as they want to dismiss it. I mean, it, it's, it sold the most, didn't it, Julian? Or am I wrong? No, you are, you are absolutely correct. It's the Thanks. only double platinum certified. Right. So it, um, it, it, non-makeup. I know, I know it's the greatest hits and this is quick to dismiss it, but it's very important to their history with, how they compiled the set list and extend they toured with, with, with Hot in the Shade, knowing that, oh, people still like these songs. But the Richie Renano interview with talking about how the Kiss conventions came to be such a big thing, I thought was the best part of the chapter because, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to, you know, Kiss conventions in the late 80s, early 90s before Kiss started their own in 95. So I, I thought that was a really interesting part of the book, how that became such a big thing. And of course, it's always nice to hear from from Mitch and to get his perspective. So I again turn the page and oh, Mitch Lafon, really? That's great. So you know, again, it's, it just kept the book fresh and interesting. And during a chapter that the Kiss likes to dismiss, I thought it was a fun chapter. Yep, Ken. Ken. Yes. He already went. I already went. I'm sorry. <laughs> Who's the one drinking beer? I was like, what? I'm fixated on that beer that's been going. I'm like a cat watching a laser pointer with that beer going by. Uh, So what? I didn't skip anyone then, did I? Reset me here. No. Thank you. Then let us move on to Hot in the Shade. And for me, this is the one chapter that I thought was lacking. Uh, For an album of 15 songs, maybe Mm. it was edited down like the album should have been and ended up really not having much there you get eddie trunk again which uh you know is fine brent again uh, it just felt like it could have been more and i i don't know what a marquee interview for hot in the shade would be gary corbett is almost too easy it really needs to be someone from the band um it really needs to be gene or paul to really explain what was going on business-wise and why there ended up being 15 songs so maybe larry mazer you know, it's someone mm-hmm. on the management side at that time. Um, 
no Hilson, um, you know, would have explained how you end up with 15 songs on a freaking album. You end up with a, a top, what was it, number eight hit, um, and the album only goes gold, and you have to delay your tour uh, because it's not selling. So it, it really is an error that could have been a book itself. You never know, might be. So, Michael, hot in the shade. Yeah, I agree with you. I think probably the two most um, interesting parts here uh, are the tour that Kurt writes about and Eric Carr remembered. Because um, the other interviews I just didn't really care too much about. Um, uh, so, yeah, I feel like the, those are the two most compelling parts of this chapter because the way the tour, um, like you were saying, the, the way it kind of shook out. And then, of course, Eric Carr um, and people's thoughts on him. I think that that there's a, and that, that's kind of how the chapter closes out pretty much. Um, so I think that for me, that's, that's the most interesting part. So I guess compared to the other chapters so far, it's the weakest, uh, except for those two parts. Yeah. And obviously Greg did write a book on Eric Carr already, you know, which came out what seven years ago, you know, so it's nice that it focuses on that. Ken hot in the shade. Yeah. Hot in the shade. Uh, I know that there's a one of the trunk interviews there, and and like we, I think we discussed a few episodes back on this on this podcast about Hot in the Shade that where we were saying the the album is too long; it should be cut down to around ten songs. Um, but I think the reason that they put it out like 15 songs on there because they were taking advantage of the format of the CD, and the vinyl was going away pretty much at that time was they were stopping the pressing of, of vinyl around that time. There's still going on, but for the most part, it was it stopped. And, and some of these bands, and I remember other CDs that had a lot of extra songs on them at that time. They were thought, oh, yeah, we could fit up more music on here. Let's just put it. But the problem is, yeah, they were putting some crappy stuff on these albums. Um, and, yeah, like, like Michael said, the Eric Carr remembered part, was very good, and I, I think that was a definite thing that sh- needed to be included, and in, you know, in in Carrie Stevens' uh, her, her views of of Eric uh, as a person and as you know, a boyfriend at the time, and so on. So it it was good. You just imagine Gene Simmons. You could fit all my demos on an album now that the CD has the space <laughs> for. Paul can't keep them off anymore. Lonnie, hot in the shade. Yeah, I agree. Um... Ken, Ken said it right, you know, but everybody was, was doing that at the time. Like, you know, it, if you look at it and just, like, you know, you look at, well, there's only so many songs on Crazy Night, so why is there so many on Hot in the Shade? It was because everybody was doing it at the time. And just because you can pit, fit 70-something worth of minutes worth of music on a CD doesn't mean you should fit 70-something minutes worth of music on, on an album. And Hot in the Shade is the perfect example of that. But um, I thought it would have been nice to get more of a Bruce Kulik perspective in this in this chapter to talk more about Eric Carr in this in this section um I did enjoy the the uh, other blurbs at the end of the album that talked about that give me more to talk about Eric Carr remembered um with the with the Carrie Stevens stuff and stuff like that and the Kurt Gooch stuff was good because everybody everybody always talks about the hot in the shade tour and everybody loves everybody everyone loves the hot in the shade tour um, but I thought it would have been good to get more of a perspective of the album itself and, you know, to go with a kiss was following a trend to put so many songs on the album to fill up 
fill, to fill up the CD and why that was important to them at the time and why why they want that rap with all these demos. But um, to me, the best part of the chapter was was just remembering Vericardi at different people's perspective with Carrie Stevens and, and Bruce and people like that. Yeah, and Bruce has a fantastic write-up on Hot on Hot in the Shade on his website. I, I hope it's on the new version. It was on the old one, and it, it was really well done. Uh, him talking about each one of the songs, you know. Yeah, again, you know, it, it's so easy to be critical of things. You know, what is there, what is not. Uh, but you know, Eric Carr remembered is, you know, it, it's perfect. Revenge, Lonnie. We'll start with you. Well, it's the best. It's the best chapter in the book because it's the best album that they released without makeup. And that goes without saying. Um, I would have, and I, I really liked how they went and documented the videos for Revenge. Um, I thought that was the best part of the chapter because I only saw. I mean, they played. I just won a, a lot the summer of '92 on MTV, and I saw Domino maybe once on MTV, and I didn't even know that there was a that. The video for, for um, yeah. I just wanna. No, I just wanna. Domino? I didn't even know the video every for time every time I. Time I, every, I didn't even know that the oh, video yeah. for every time I look at you even existed for the longest time. Um, right. and and I think a lot of us were in the same camp. I mean, I saw Domino once. I just wanna was on a lot, a lot the summer of '92. But I thought I really enjoyed the way they they went back and talked about the videos because that was something that was lacking in the other chapters that we weren't talking about those videos and that was really i mean that was mtv at its height about that time even too at least at least for me that was mtv at its height it was like 92 93 around that area era and you know mtv music awards were just appointment television and it was the biggest thing ever so i i enjoyed the revenge chapter obviously it goes without saying i thought an interview with larry mazer would have been great right here just because he was so integral part of the band at the time with his vision of Unholy being the lead track and a Gene track being the lead track and the lead single, I thought that would have given a little more impression to the chapter. But obviously, obviously, I enjoyed the chapter of Revenge. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, for me, the most interesting parts were uh, music videos. Absolutely, I think it was a cool idea to to have that be a focus of it. And also, I like the part about the solo. Uh, careers. I think that was nice uh, touch as well. So those two things for me were the most interesting parts. Absolutely. Yep. Ken. Yeah, I agree with uh, what you said, Lonnie, and Mike said, but also the uh, the Kurt Gooch part about the Revenge tour, because um, I remember that well, um, and I remember you know the the lead into that, the the solo. Uh, a uh, little mini solo, I guess, yeah, the club tour. That is not solo tour, but club tour that uh, kicked off Revenge, kind of. Um, and I, that one quote or about Gilby, Gilby Clark is in there. I don't know if it's that section, but I know he says that it was the... Um, he, he rode his bike up to go to that first show at the, at the mm-hmm. Stone in San Francisco, which I was at. And uh, he he saw that. I guess he was there too, obviously. Um, and he said that's the best Kiss show he's ever seen, or I think best concert he's ever seen. I think he loves Kiss. He's a big Kiss fan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I thought, you know what? Yeah, it was the best one without the all the fireworks and everything else. It was that good. It really was that good being there. 
Um, so I thought that was interesting that he brought that up. But yeah, it, it's a good good section. And then stuff about the stage and the the uh, Statue of Liberty and uh, that design uh, happening um, for that stage with the you know the finger going up and all that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought Lawn Friend was great. You know, Riff Magazine. Oh, yeah. That was that was kind mm-hmm. of the the uh, go to magazine back then because I wasn't reading Circus or Hit Parade or I was getting Riff. Um, loved the the video features on that. You know, which I said was missing from Crazy Nights. He totally nailed it with, uh, you know, the discussion in this chapter. And also, I love the section on what the former members were up to. Alive Three. Um, Derek Sherenian is uh, kind of the, the key one there um instruments you know that's a little bit of filler michelangelo uh batio uh, a little bit filler judging kiss guitarist how can anyone judge kiss guitarist other than bob um but you know alive three i thought needed eddie kramer again there there's an argument about the sonics to this album that would have been nice to get in his own words um lonnie alive three that would have been yeah, your first it was live a- album it was interesting that Alive Through, you know, obviously it has to be included. It's a big part of it. Um, I thought Bruce's stuff on there was the most interesting in there just because it's Bruce's Alive album, you know, and he is is really proud of it, obviously. Um, I thought it was okay. I thought there could have been some more meat to it, as Julian said. I think talking about the instruments on that was kind of like just filler, just a way to, to fill out the chapter on it. Um, Eddie, to echo what Julian said, Eddie Kramer is the guy to talk to because that's the most controversial. The sound on Alive Three, it doesn't sound like the band on the Revenge Tour, but that's another discussion. So, I, th- I think Eddie would have been the perfect choice to get to get in there to kind of fill in some perspective on why it sounds the way it does compared to how the band really sounded on that tour. So, to me, I wasn't. It was one of the more be critical those are one of the more dollar chapters in the book for me yeah okay yeah i think the best section of the live three for me um because that album it's not one of my favorite albums um sonically like you're talking about um it kind of doesn't work for me um but the section where uh, bruce kulik is talking about the uh the non-makeup guitar guide uh part of it at, at the end of that uh bruce's guitars and and his own, he talks about his own guitars, of course, but then he talks about Paul's guitars and Gene's basses, Vinny's marks. I mean, it goes into all, you know, all of them. Um, so, and I thought that was really cool um, because that's just something you don't normally, you know, read about or hear about uh, actually talking about the instruments themselves. So uh, that was a cool section of that. So, yeah, otherwise it was your standard Alive 3 fair. <laughs> Michael. Yeah, I agree. I do think that there was filler in this chapter a significant amount. Um, and the most interesting part was Bruce. And I did think it was a little interesting to hear from a keyboard player who's playing off stage just to kind of get his thoughts on that. Because, uh, you know, it's kind of like a studio musician in a way, right? There's, there's names you don't necessarily know, but they're still adding to the music that we enjoy. So I think it was nice to kind of have his take. But other than that, I mean, it, it could have been trimmed down just because... Um, you know, but I mean, hey, I guess I'll take more rather than less. But um, out of all the chapters, I think this price so far is the weakest one. Yeah, 
well, I think Kiss My Ass, which comes next, was pretty weak. Not not a fan of that. Again, uh, I just skirted through that. So I really, uh, you know, Billy Gold, Faith No More, Shandy's Addiction, cool. Charlie Bonatti, um, again, cool. I would have liked to do more information on the rumors, uh, you know, the rejected okay. songs. Um, but again, I skirted through that very quickly. Michael, straight back to you on that. Yeah, this album, I, you know, it's an okay album, right? So it's not like if you don't have a fondness for it whatsoever, especially because it's a covers album, right? There's not, it's not like Kiss performed, like it's not, it's not something that they created that's original. Um, so yeah, I'm not terribly interested in learning a heck of a lot about it because I mean it's kind of straightforward. It's a covers album. So yeah, I, I'm the same as you. I kind of just skim through this chapter just to kind of move on to the next one because. Um, I guess the most interesting part for me is probably the Kiss Convention Tour, where Kirk gets into that, because that is something uh, I missed out on. I mean, obviously, I got to be on Kiss Cruises and things like that, which I think is kind of like the next best thing. But because I wasn't able to be part of the Kiss Convention Tour at the time, I think it was nice to be able to just kind of relive some of the details, um, you know, through his words. Yep. Come off mute helps. Lonnie. Um, yeah, I, I, I was looking forward to this chapter and I, I, cause I thought there would be more on the rumors of who was going to be included and like why it ended up that they weren't included. Cause like we all, I remember seeing like a sheet, I don't know what it was on about, you know, people that were going to be on the album, like Megadeth and Jackal and, and Madonna, uh, Madonna you know, <laughs> and things like that. And like, oh wow. You know, there'd be, you know. I'd be more. I was more interested in seeing like what was the thought process of, of getting some of these people on, and we ended up what ended up being on there was like, you know, some subpar bands at the time. That, well, okay, but it, it really didn't because Kiss My Ass didn't really come out to be what I don't. I think Gene really envisioned it to be, and I was I was really hoping to get some insight on that to why we got the version of Kiss My Ass we got versus the version of what Gene had originally envisioned. Yeah. Uh, I was hoping for that. So I guess, the, so I was, I was disappointed that wasn't included. I, I did like that. We went through some of the, the different long form videos and stuff like that, that came out in the eighties. Cause cool. I think that needs, needed to be documented cause it was an important part of the band's history in that era. Ken. Yeah. I mean, uh, the section about the, uh, what is it, Charlie Benante, he's talking about stuff. But the, the thing about, uh, the other uh, thing about, what is it, um, uh, the country singer, Garth Brooks, um, about them not releasing that as a single when they probably should have. Um, and, and I agree with that. They should have done it. They should have just done it, even though I think Garth didn't want it released as a single. Um, the other part, yeah, the Kiss Convention deal, um, I found that interesting. I wish there was more of that because, you know, like, unlike, you know, Michael, he, he couldn't attend it, uh, and I was able to attend the San Francisco one. So uh, I, I do remember getting the, like, it was advertised as part of, uh, I have a couple of postcards. They actually sent me two postcards, Kiss advertising that um uh, that unplugged show uh, the convention show um i remember getting that and i think that was because i was on the mailing list because i got the uh history book right i ordered that i think you got on the mailing list and then so they they, they mailed you uh 
all those out, all the people who ordered the, that book. But anyway, um, I thought that was interesting. I wish there was more on the the conventions because that was a that was a big turning point, I think, of them starting to, you know, realize their their legacy, I guess. Yep, Michael Leaders into the good, the bad, and the ugly of Kiss Unplugged. Yeah, so actually, I would argue that Kiss Unplugged is Kiss's greatest live album ever. Um, it, you know, from a, a musicianship point of view, it's just phenomenal. I mean, it's so good that they keep doing acoustic shows on the cruises, and they used to do them backstage. I mean, so clearly it had a huge influence on the band today. Um, and obviously it led to the reunion and things like that. So for me, it's one of the most fascinating uh points in history uh it's probably the the next biggest moment since taking the makeup off because it, it led to something huge um and it demonstrated to the world just how talented these guys really are when it comes to their their music it's not simply um you know that it's, it's not simply about the looks although they do have an interview with this schmuck named julian in here i don't know about that <laughs> i don't know how that made the cut <laughs> no, that's pretty cool. But uh, you know, you're the edit, edit me out. Edit me out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I think that's awesome, especially considering your appreciation for, um, you know, Kiss Unmasked. Uh, it's great that you you're able to have your thoughts on this because it is such an important uh, point. And I do think it's cool that that he decided to have someone that the fans know and appreciate in the book. Um, you know, fans' voice. Uh, and someone who knows a lot about the music, um, you know, beyond, I guess, Kurt. Uh, I think it's nice to have someone like that. So I think that was really cool and a nice surprise when I was reading. I'm like, oh, Julian's in here. Awesome. So for me, that was really great uh, seeing that. Um, and then, of course, you know, again, there's this added information about on-camera interviews, which is nice, too, um, which I didn't expect. But it was a cool addition. Uh, to the book. So for me, I, I kind of ate up this chapter because uh, it's one of the most exciting points in time for the band for me. Yeah, I think uh, this is going to be everyone's favorite chapter. Me, Kurt. Um, is Ace. Ace in that one? Ace. Yeah. Oh, Ace. Ace. That, that guy. Ace. Ken, tell us about Ace. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to mention that, you know, Ace is interviewed too. Uh, while, you know, it's not that long, but it was interesting getting that perspective of course i think i've heard him talk about this before uh about uh you know how they were at or he was asked he and peter was asked to uh do they unplugged how they were contacted by them and then uh you know the doing you know 2000 man and and all that kind of stuff um so i think he remembers it well and, and enjoyed that period of time it was you know I'm obviously glad to be back and, you know, it, it launched the reunion, actually. So um, and then, you, you know, your interview was it was good, of course, Julian. You know, I did enjoy it. You don't give yourself enough credit, but uh, um, <laughs> it was good. And then the yeah, the, the all their TV video appearances that they've appeared on a lot of them that I remember seeing them either on, you know, bootlegs or couple of them saw them you know live and and so on while, when they were on tv uh, but uh yeah it was okay section though otherwise yeah you, you know i think it's a nice touch tim had done uh, an unplugged section with uh bruce kulik for the odyssey book you know because they covered a world without heroes so he did a look back on um 
a home hits Bruce Kulick hits a home run, you know, something to to that effect. So it was nice to get Ace's take looking back on that mm-hmm. and Martin Popov. You know, yeah, Martin Popov. Uh, you know, great, great to have. You know, a lot of these people are kind of mainstream. Eddie Trunk, Martin Popov, Mitch Lafon. You know, so it's it's really cool from that perspective. Some of the people that have been included in that, I couldn't remember contributing to this, so uh, I'm gonna have to read that. Later. Yeah, right. I've, I've not been able to read it. I remember being asked, but I when I first arrived in the door, I was like, holy shit, I'm in Forgot. Here. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten it. had been a while. So Lonnie, unplugged. No, I thought it was, it was great. Um, it was nice to hear from Ace. That was a welcome surprise that, oh, it's Ace Fraley talking about it. I thought that was that was a good, that was a great addition. Um, seeing you, Julian, kept me interested as well. Um, I thought we could have, we as much as we spent some time talking about the different television appearances, I would have liked to hear more about the album itself and the coming together of just some more from the author, going back to some original points when we started talking about this. Um, some more from the author about how it came together with with getting the original band back together because it was such an historical moment. Obviously, I would like to have gotten a little bit more in depth on that. But um, but but the the different television appearances were cool because some of them you know you kind of forget about over time. So it was kind of neat to to go back through and and read about some of those. So I, I thought it was a and then at the very end, though, they talk about different what different artists were doing at the time. And I think that's always interesting. And we talk about that on the show quite a bit of what what other artists were doing at the time. We talk about, you know, we always talk about, well, Unmasked in the 80, well, in 1980. Well, Judas Priest was doing this and ACDC was doing that. And we got Unmasked, which is such a far cry from that. Why? why what were they thinking? So I always like to look back at, oh, in 1995, Smashing Pumpkins was doing this. You know, in 1991, Guns N' Roses released Use Your Illusion versus what Kiss was doing at the time. It's it's a very neat perspective of what the other mainstream acts were doing. I thought that was really interesting part of the book, actually. Yeah, so now's a good point for a commercial. Um, obviously, for those of you who love the 1980s and the Unmasked Era of Kiss, tomorrow will be another internet scre- uh, scre- screaming, screening of screaming. The, the unofficial... <laughs> Um, what is it? Face- exclusive Facebook watch party live from Fort Wayne, Indiana, May the 20th, 1990. It's a multicam fan production, which will be streaming November the 15th, 6 p.m. Eastern on Facebook. Look on the FAQ message board for where to see that. Um, not officially released, not officially sanctioned, of course. And why don't we give away these uh, two copies now? So if you want to win a copy of this uh, fine book anywhere in the world, email kissfaq at outlook.com uh, there's no questions to answer just email gimme and I'll put you in a random drawing for it on uh, what is it Wednesday the 20th November at noon pacific I'll do a drawing and the winners will be notified by email final chapter in the book Carnival of Souls um, Ken let's start with you for this one yeah Carnival of Souls um, of course we get the uh, Toby Wright interview which a lot of it I've I think heard or, or you know, read before from him regarding regarding the music, um, which of course he he likes it all pretty much <laughs> everything that they recorded and, and the style that uh, they they used. Um, and he's 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 according to what he was saying, uh, he wasn't like trying to make a grunge album. It was just the way he you know produced. Though Gene is the one that you know wanted to try to get that sound 
because that was, of course, the, the hot music at the time. Um, the other thing is the Bruce Kulick interview is really good because, you know, he, he was prominent on that album. Um, so that was another really good interview on there. Um, what was the other one? There was something else, too, after Bruce that I really enjoyed, but... I probably can't remember here. Oh, oh, about they talk about the reunion that wasn't because they kind of go back and they mention that. Yeah, the, the they talk about the reunion where uh, you know there was they, did they know it was going to happen or Toby Wright uh, did he know it was just kind of like a surprise to everybody, surprise to him and Bruce and and Eric Singer um, that when they were you know told about it that Kiss you know Gene and Paul were going to reunite with uh ace and peter um so that was that was interesting there and then but about the tour that wasn't a reunion that wasn't was about the other possible try that they would have possibly tried to re have a reunion but with uh with eric carr and ace in that lineup uh with paul and gene and but you know and then of course eric's health you know, happened and his health problems and so on. So, but yeah, it was a pretty good section. Um, it's, it's an album that is kind of overlooked. Like they said, with the elder as a couple of albums that are way off of Kiss's normal style. Yep. Lonnie. Yeah. I mean, they, they talk with, with Toby Wright and Bruce Kulick and those are the two obvious interviews from, from this era people to talk to you know it's people almost call it carnival of souls of almost a bruce kulik solo album he had so much involvement in it well gene and paul were were plotting the reunion tour so um I, I enjoyed hearing from toby and and from bruce getting their perspective and then at the very end hearing different people's perspective of of the reunion tour itself which which shelved the album for for a couple of years so um you know hear, hearing the good and bad people's re um, perspectives on the reunion tour. Um, you know, get, mentioning Gilby Clark said he thought Ace really killed it on the album and said he could hardly even tell Peter was hitting the drums, is what Gilby said while well, it was at the very end. So I thought that was interesting as well, just to get different people's perspectives on that. But obviously, the two people to talk to were, were Bruce and Toby, and, and the author got both those interviews to, uh, yeah. to round out Carnival of Souls. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, I agree. I think Bruce and Toby were great. Um, again, it's an, an album uh, in an era that seems to feature several underappreciated uh, or misunderstood albums, and this is another one of them. So for me, that, those are the most fascinating chapters. Um, not the albums that get talked about to death, but the ones that are kind of, you know, only like a minority of fans seem to like them. So for me, this is very interesting to read about this because uh, they aren't stories that have been beat to death typically. Uh, and then, of course, the reunion tour that um, like everyone was talking about, you know, when it was originally rumored to happen, that's fascinating to, to read about, too, because it's like, you know, a whole what if situation. Um, like some fans talk about what if there was no reunion? What if, you know, Bruce was continuing with the band uh, and Eric um, and the reunion never happened? Where would we be now? So I think any time you have a what if situation, it's always provocative. That makes you think and leads to, you know, an engaging uh, part of the book. So I enjoyed this chapter. 
Yeah. Um, I'm going to wrap up with a few quick questions of you all, uh, just an overall view of the book. Did, did you have a favorite or a least favorite chapter? My favorite chapter was the one I'm in, and my least favorite chapter is the one I'm in. Um, <laughs> Ken, did you have any favorites or least you know, favorite I, chapters? Well, you know, I mean, least favorite, probably something like, yeah, the uh, unplugged and probably is, is that one, I would say. The one I'm in. Thanks. Uh, yeah, except for your interview. <laughs> Except for that, that was great. <laughs> uh, nothing against you, but I think it was just uh, it's just the subject matter and more than, than anything else is what uh, I'm not interested in going back to too much. Um, but the, the rest of the book really, for the most part, the whole, whole book's really good. I mean, it's a book that needed to be needed to be done because there isn't another one out there uh, that covers this time period. Um, and it's a period that there a lot of Kiss fans came in on, and that uh, they and there's some Kiss fans that only enjoy the only enjoy uh, the non-makeup stuff. They they enjoy it more than the the makeup, which is surprising to me at least. Um, but it's it's a great book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm, I know I'm going to read it again um, because you know got to make this stuff stick in my brain. Old well, brain. that's that's one of the things that the format really lends it to that you can just flip it open pretty much and go we haven't talked even about the color inserts because you know we're running short on time here and we we've gone way over our time allotment michael you you know favorite least favorite in it yeah sure so uh to reiterate what ken said i do think despite my complaints about eddie trunk that overall it's an excellent book filled with like you have right there great photos great content and that if you're a hardcore KISS fan or even a casual KISS fan, there's a lot to get out of this book that you, you know, maybe don't know. Uh, and uh, it's just a fun, deep dive into this era of the band. As for favorite, least favorite, I actually am going to say that I think KISS Unplugged is probably my favorite because of uh, just the variety of people that weigh in and because of such an exciting time in the band's history. Uh, and I'd say least favorite probably is KISS My Ass uh, now that we've talked about it because <laughs> It's just an era that, um, like Lonnie was saying, I don't think they ex it was explored perhaps in the way that would have been most interesting. Um, so it's kind of a missed or a kissed opportunity, if you will. Um, and, you know, had it been explored the way that Lonnie suggested, it probably would have been really fascinating. But since it wasn't, it was kind of, you know, that a uh, little bit of a letdown and a little skippable because of that. Yep. Good thoughts on, I agree with you on Kiss My Ass, not being a very good section uh but that's because i hate despise that album with a passion lonnie um i overall i enjoyed the book i thought it was great like you guys said and I, you know it's, it's an era that that goes unexplored and it's a book that had to be written and I, it's a book that i think I'll, I'll revisit often um as i said earlier i'm going to stick with what i said earlier i think analyze was still my favorite section just because the different views we got you know and Maybe maybe because I don't appreciate Animalize as much, and I don't listen to Animalize as much. It was the most interesting because, you know, I don't I don't have as much of a knowledge of that album, even though it's all original album. But because and I guess maybe because it is an all original album and has a lot of of history to it, um, I thought it was really interesting to get some different perspectives on that. And I'm gonna stick with what I said. I thought Alive Three was maybe the weakest for me because. Um, I think an Eddie Kramer would have an Eddie Kramer interview had it could have been gotten would have made that a whole lot better on the perspective of of the sound of that of that album versus how the band sounded during that era. 
Yeah, so overall, you know, I really enjoyed it. So it's easy I to recommend too. it. It's a, you know, a really good, again, packaging is nice on it. I like the design, nice little leaves and all that. And, uh, you know, nicely constructed, you know. So I, th I think Greg's done a, a really good job on it. So heartily recommend it. Um, you know, enter the contest, maybe you'll win a freebie. Um, and if not, do pick it up. Um, I haven't seen what it's retailing for. It's uh, 22 on the listed on the back of it so you probably get it discounted somewhere um i guess that's it we're not going to talk about the cancellation of the kiss tour today because we're 90 minutes in and there's a 30 minute interview with greg prado uh that follows this so i guess let's leave that there for now thank you all for you know taking the time to opine about this new book and uh brought a lot of good points to it that hopefully other folk will get to dig in and notice as they're going through the book themselves it's going to be officially published um, when does it come out? Tomorrow, I believe, Friday the 15th. So, uh, and if not, it'll be out within a few days. So do check it out, Greg. Good job on the book. Uh, and to everyone who participated and contributed it, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, a bunch of good stuff. So for now, from Lonnie, from Ken, from Michael and myself, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Watch the interview. Bye now. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to the Kiss FAQ podcast, Greg Prado, author. Uh, of the forthcoming book, Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked. Yep, that is me. It's true. Hello, Julian. How you doing? Well, it's great to finally get you on the show because you've got quite a bit of a history as a, a writer of Kiss-related material, notably the 2012 book, The Eric Carr Story. And as a fan of Eric Carr and a fan of the era. I'd just like to thank you personally for putting that book together and continuing to hold a candle for Eric Spirit. It was absolutely fantastic that you did that book at that time. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, sad that Eric uh, seems to be not, not very forgotten, but he never really seems to get the credit I think he deserves. Uh, for me, the big part why the Creatures of the Night album was so special was because of his colossal drum sound. So uh, Eric Carr is still remembered and still loved. So yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Now, as a writer, um, I'd just like to get a quick bit of background of how you got into writing and specifically into the music side of writing. Well, I became a writer totally by accident. I uh, took a job as a customer service rep for a now defunct music magazine back in 19, it was the late 90s, I can't remember the exact uh, date or exact year. But yeah, it was as a customer service rep, and I saw how easy it was to be a writer from seeing the, the fellow writers that were actually working there. And I tried to get a, uh, I tried to get a foot in the door writing there, but it was pretty clear I wouldn't be able to get get a shot. So I wound up uh, leaving there and built up my contacts because that was right around the time that uh, the uh, web was really building up with all websites and things like that. So I was lucky that I was able to get some pretty good uh, gigs at that point, such as. Uh, all Media Guy was uh, one place I started writing for. And then after that, I started writing for Billboard, Rolling Stone, and several other uh, outlets as well. And then I started doing books. And I believe 2008, the first book I ever did was about Shannon Hoon, the singer of Blind Melon, called A Devil on One Shoulder and an Angel on the Other. And since then, I've been doing a bunch of books. The uh, new uh, book, uh, Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked, is number 20-something. I lost, I lost track, to be honest with you. Good. 
uh, because I lose track of my own as well. We don't keep <laughs> count. We, we just put them out. When I posted right. on the FAQ message board that you had this book coming out, people immediately recognized your name. And you got a lot of love on the board, actually, for the King's Cross out, um, book that you put out earlier this year and Soundgarden were the two that people were kind of uh, sounding off about as being you know really worthwhile books to pick up about both of those artists. So it's, it's great to see your diverse you know, interest in music and how you've translated this in to what you know is perceived as quality product by people. Thank you. Yeah, the uh, King's X book came out earlier this year called King's X: The Oral History. And speaking of which, Eric Carr was a very big fan of King's X. He's he actually mentioned in the book. Yeah, he was a huge fan of King's X. Yeah, I, what was it? Gretchen goes to Nebraska. He used to yep. absolutely love that album when it came out, and, and whichever one it was in 1989 during the Hot in the Shade tour, he, he yep. was whenever he was interviewed, he, what are you listening to? Oh, I'm loving King's Cross, you know, and yep. that was really what he was into at that time. So a great Kiss tie in there. But let's get into, um, you know, take it off. You know, what was the impetus for you deciding to do a book focused strictly on the unmasked era of Kiss? Well, it seems like all of the uh, official books that have come out with the uh, approval of Gene and Paul, they're primarily Gene and Paul telling their side of the story. We don't really hear anything from Bruce and any of the other uh, participants, whether they be whether, whether they be producers or songwriters. Uh, so I put together a list of people that I thought would be interesting to speak to. And I started writing this book. And yeah, I think it, it definitely is a good accompaniment to a lot of the uh, previous official KISS books that are out there. And I got to say, so far, I'm blown away with all the early feedback I'm getting, uh, especially from you. I want to thank you for the nice review you posted on the uh, KISS, the KISSFAQ.com uh, board. That was a very kind of you. I appreciate that. You're very welcome, but that's the era that I got into the band, and what a lot of people forget is that there are people like me who got into the band in the 1980s who then later discovered that the band wore makeup. I mean, I, I might just be an oddity in that I had no clue that those that makeup band and the band I got into in 1985 were the same band. But, right. you know, it, it's nice to see it all packaged up as, you know, one celebration, just the focus on one era. Now, what were some of the decisions that you made in terms of getting people like Eddie Trunk? I mean, he's a monster in the industry and carries, you know, that sword for rock um, to this day. But people like him and Chris Jericho involved in, um, you know, talking about their memories of this time. Yeah, I mean, you know what it is? I interviewed a lot of people that I knew already were fans of this non-makeup era, such as you said, um, <clears throat> Eddie Trunk. But then I know there are the people that have not been really interviewed at length, such as uh, Keith Roth, who is the host of uh, Ozzy's Boneyard. And also, uh, for instance, the Kiss My Ass tribute, I knew that Bill Gould, the bassist from Faith No More, was never really interviewed, and I'm a huge Faith No More fan. So I reached out to him, and he uh, said yes to that, because he did a really interesting cover for that album. That was with uh, Maynard from Tool and two guys from Rage Against the Machine. They did a cover of Calling Dr. Love under the name Shandy's Addiction, which that's probably one of my favorite tracks on that album. I think that's a great track. So he had some really interesting stories to say. One thing which was pretty good was uh, I think that was recorded in 1993. And that Christmas, Bill Gould received a huge bouquet of fruit from Kiss as a, a thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, what about some of the other people who that you've interviewed? And did you have any interviews that you'd kind of done that were sitting around that you said, I need to use these in some way? Or did you do all of these interviews with everyone for this book specifically? 
I'd say about 80% is brand new. Uh, I used a few excerpts from previous books that I wrote, such as the uh, Eric Carr story. There's a uh, piece in the book where we talk about people, how they would like Eric to be remembered, and that I used quotes from from that. And also there's um, an excerpt from one of my earlier books called MTV Ruled the World, because there was a chapter in that book where people talk about the kiss unmasking uh, thing they had in the fall of 1983. So, so those are two that I could think of, but the vast majority are all is, is all brand new content with interviews specifically done for this book. Now, what about the structure? Because each chapter starts off with basically a summary, um, mm-hmm. and then you have someone writing a featured introduction to that album. You've got Kurt Gooch writing absolutely incredible tour recaps. Um, the, the fact that he's been able to be so concise in those and really present the essence of those tours, I was very impressed by his writing on those. What made you decide to structure in that way, and then, of course, including quotes and other interview material for each chapter? Yeah, you know, um, the majority of my books were set up in what's called the oral history format, which is I'll have a topic and then it's just a bunch of quotes from different people. But for this book, it's different. Like you said, we go album by album from Lick It Up through, uh, I believe the last album was the Carnival of Souls album. And for each album, there's a first me giving a little bit of background about the album. Then I interview two people that are either big fans of that specific album or are somehow linked to that. For instance, Crazy Nights has Ron Nevis and the producer uh, talking about that. And I believe uh, Eddie Trunk is the other one speaking about that album. And then after that, we have Kurt Gooch talking about that particular uh, tour, which, again, I have to say he did a, a fantastic job. He was telling me facts and, and very interesting things that I didn't even know reading his book, Kiss, Kiss Alive Forever. He was telling me things that didn't even make it in that book. So I really have to give him props for, you know, giving me some really great content. And then after that, there's um, one interesting little tidbit that I add, such as there's one thing where it's Ron Keel talking about Gene Simmons as a producer. There's another part where um, we have Martin Popoff, who's a very uh, renowned uh, writer, talking. He goes from 1983 through 1996 talking about three standout heavy metal albums each year, so the reader gets to compare what was going, uh, comparing what Kiss album had to what the, I guess, competition was at the time, such as like 1983, it's uh, Quiet Riot, Metal Health, Motley Crue, Shout Out the Devil, and Def Leppard, um, uh, what is that, uh, Pyromania. Pyromania. Yes, exactly. And it's very interesting to see how much heavy metal changed from 1983 through 1996 through the hair metal, then grunge, then you know bands like Pantera and Sepultura, so... That was pretty interesting, not even from a KISS perspective, just to see how much metal changed over that 13-year period. And then, of course, I think you've got one of the members of Anthrax, don't you? Yes, uh, Charlie Bignante. Actually, he's the one that I speak to for the uh, Crazy Nights portion, because Anthrax opened up about uh, a month uh, for, uh, for that tour. When I saw that tour in January of 88, it was actually Ted Nugent opening up at the NASA Coliseum. It wasn't Anthrax. But, uh, yeah, I interviewed him. I'm sorry, what was that? I'm sorry, I got some static there. Um, uh, you, you, were, you were talking about when you saw Anthrax open up for Kiss on the tour? Oh, no, it was uh, it was actually Ted Nugent opening up for Kiss. That was on the Crazy Nights tour in January of 88 at uh, Nassau Coliseum. Right. Uh, you've got Chris Jericho does the introduction for your book. How did his involvement come about, and what made you think Chris Jericho is the perfect guy to write the intro uh, you know, to this to this work? Well, I have to say, I don't want to kiss Bruce Kulik's ass too much. 
<laughs> but I have to give him uh, an insane amount of credit. He is one of the nicest people I've ever dealt with, and he was an incredible help with this book. I did a very, very lengthy interview with him for this book, and again, he was great with a lot of facts and info I didn't know about. And I asked him, I said, can you recommend someone that would be good to write the forward? And he said, Chris Jericho. And he then reached out to Chris Jericho. Chris said he was interested, and then he helped set it up. So it was 100% Bruce who did that. So I have to say thank you to uh, Bruce Kulik. Bruce is always a classy gentleman, a great interviewee, and, and just so much fun to talk with, as I know from personal experience as well. Um, were you surprised by Chris Jericho's background and, you know, what he came from? through with for that forward you know because his story is very engaging for again someone from that that era who got into the band at that time i was like wow you know this is very similar to my own story right well i knew he was a fan of metal because of uh, fozzy of course and then also yeah. i know he's been interviewed for a lot of like vh1 classic documentaries where i remember him talking once about the metallica black album so i and actually how he didn't care for it <laughs> So he, uh, I know, is a pretty uh, well-versed, he, he's very well-versed in the whole history of uh, metal. So, so no, it, it wasn't a surprise. I, I didn't necessarily know he was that big a fan of Kiss. I don't think I've ever really heard him talking about Kiss, but it was uh, Bruce who uh, told me uh, that he'd be a good person. And, yeah, I think he did a, he did a great job writing the uh, forward. And the afterward is a gentleman by the name of uh, Andreas Carlson, who's a uh, producer. And that was also Bruce who said he thought he'd be a good person. And he wrote a great forward, too, because... Like you, he got into Kiss, I think. Well, he got into Kiss around 1980, I think he said he saw them, if, if I'm not mistaken. But it was really the uh, non-makeup era that really he was, a, uh, he, was, he was a big fan of. You know, I take that back. It may have been the Animalized tour with Bruce. I forget if it was either Unmasked or the Animalized tour that he first saw Kiss. But he uh, did talk about how the... I just uh, lost your oh, audio. Just lost oh, your audio all through there. Oh, how about now? Can you hear me now? Yep, you're back. Okay. Yeah, uh, Andreas was saying that it was the Bruce Kulick era of Kiss that really uh, made him a huge fan of Kiss. Yeah, and they were visiting Scandinavia at the time, you know, pretty much every year, 83 and 84 and, you know, 88. So, you know, I thought that was a very interesting kind of bookend because like also Andreas, of course, worked with Paul Stanley later on uh, for yes. his solo work. But you as a Kiss fan, you know, what was it in the 80s that was kind of a standout to you um, in terms of an album? If I was to say, what's your favorite Unmasked album that you really, really still enjoy to this day? I'd have to go with definitely uh, Lick It Up, I think, is my favorite, because it's a little bit of a holdover from Creatures, and Creatures is one of my favorite Kiss albums of all time. It doesn't have as great a drum sound, and the material isn't quite as stellar, but uh, they st I, I really think Vinnie Vincent added a great dimension to that band. Um, you know, too bad he didn't stick around, but uh, but that said, Bruce, I thought, was a very good uh, contributor as well. So, uh, But I'd have to go with Lick It Up, I think, song for song. You know what it is with that album that I like a lot, too, is I think Gene is still singing from the makeup demon persona, like you could picture him in Creatures of the Night makeup and costume singing uh, the song called Not for the Innocent. But, uh, you know, but, but then again, like we talk about in the book, there's a song like um, Dance All Over Your Face, which Gene kind of made a uh, bad move with uh, doing these like bad misogynistic lyrics sometimes in the 80s, such as that song and also Burn Bitch Burn, which... Uh, Catherine Terman, who's a co-author of a great metal book called uh, Louder Than Hell, I interviewed her for the book, and she talks about how, uh, for some reason, misogyny was in metal in the 80s a lot with, you know, lyrics by Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and those two Kiss tracks. 
And she was going to be one of my questions of what on earth um, made you decide to have that. I mean, it's so obvious to us now that all mm. all of those lyrics were very misogynistic. But, right. um, you know, what was the, kind of the decision thought behind having her interview to, to talk about that in the book? You know, the thing is, with all the books I've ever done, I try to uh, put things in the book that will appeal to maybe people that aren't that familiar with that the topic. But that said, I also want to include things that may, maybe were not pursued as much about that topic. So uh, that's something, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think has really ever been studied. Or I know for a fact it hasn't been in any previous Kiss books. Or I'm thinking of most metal history books, like with specific bands. I don't think that's ever really been explored. So I thought that's something that was that would have been pretty interesting to uh, you know talk about and discuss. And I thought Catherine had some very um, interesting views and also some interesting things to say about that topic. I thought it was refreshing. I mean, it was a little bit mm-hmm. off the wall, but I thought it worked very well within the context of what what you were discussing. So you know, uh, props for going in that direction. You know, it takes a certain amount of bravery to stretch the boundaries a, a little bit. Um, you've got people like Mitch Weissman. He's another fantastic interview, as I know. As his, yes. you know, his, his stories and connections with the band go way way back, as as people will find out. So right. um, Derek Sherinian. Uh, you know, for for later on, uh, what's that? A live three, I believe. Uh, he was yeah, the he touring keyboardist. That. Yes, exactly. It was on the uh, Revenge uh, tour. He was the, he was the touring keyboardist. As as I find, whenever I do a book, people always ask this question, and I hate having to ask it. But did you reach out to any of the members, uh, the current members of the band, like Eric Singer or even Gene and Paul, to uh, try and get interviews with them for this work? No, I didn't bother because I know I did for the um, <clears throat> Eric Carr storybook and I uh, didn't get the OK for that. And also, like I said before, you know, we've definitely read a lot about Gene and Paul's thoughts on this era with the previous official Kiss books. So with this book, I really wanted to get uh, different people talking about it that haven't really been interviewed at length. Because, I mean, if you think about it, Bruce was there just as much as pretty much Gene and Paul from he was on three, two or three songs on the um, Animalize album, but from Asylum through Carnival of Souls, he was there always for the recordings, the writings, the touring. So, I mean, he's just as valid a person to speak to as just about any other member. So I wanted to see what you know he, he had to say, because in all the previous Kiss books, maybe has a few sentences, but he's never really you know interviewed really at uh, length. So I wanted to interview him and, like I said, Ron Nevison and Toby Wright, the producer of Carnival of Souls, and you said Mitch. Uh, Weissman is a great interviewer. Uh, Juan Beauvoir, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He, or excuse me, Jean. Jean Beauvoir. Yeah, yeah. Who co-wrote a bunch of Kiss songs. And also, like, oh, and uh, I thought also Ron Keel had some very interesting things to say about uh, Gene as a uh, producer, because, of course, Gene in the 80s branched out and uh, produced Keel and Black and Blue and uh, Easy O and uh, several other bands as well. I don't remember. Do you, you, do you have Gary Corbett in there as well? Or, I interviewed Gary. No, I interviewed Gary for the uh, Eric Carr storybook. That that was the thing. I tried not to interview all the same people that I interviewed for that previous book about Eric Carr. I wanted to make this book a little bit separate. I mean, I didn't. I didn't. I did interview Bruce for both books because he was such a big part of the story. But I tried to not interview the same people uh, for both books. Actually, Ron, I interviewed for both books too, but. I kept it to maybe two or two, two or three people tops out of everybody. 
So it's not, for for fans who say, "Well, I've got the Eric Carr story. I, this is just going to be a rehash of all that." It's not. It's got you know obviously 1983 through 1997, which is a much broader spectrum than the, the narrow focus of you know paying homage to Eric Carr. Uh, Toby Wright, you know, in, he's really really fun to talk to as well. Uh, yeah. Though you can you can end up on tangents far away from Kiss with him very easily and very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a song that he said that was interesting. My main gripe with uh, the whole non-makeup era is that, unlike the 70s, Kiss seemed to be following trends rather than really being their own band. And even as far as that album, uh, Toby Wright even said that uh, he sat down with Gene at one point, and uh, Smashing Pumpkins were very popular at that point. And uh, Gene said he wanted to maybe write a song to Smashing Pumpkins. And I think Toby Wright tried to... Tell him, you know, like, why would you do that? You know, kiss is kiss. Just keep doing what you're doing. To which then Gene said something to the effect of, well, Smashing Pumpkins are the most popular band now, and it would probably also make him money. So then to Toby Wright said, all right, well, then there you go. That, that right there is the answer. So I guess Gene, you know, pretty much at that point was going with, well, it, it's pretty obvious throughout the 80s. They were kind of glammy looking. Then they got very heavy. Then, you know, then at that point, grunge. But the thing that I talk about in the book, by like 1996 or you know, 1995, 96, when they were working on that Carnival of Souls album, I thought it was a very grungy album. I thought it was an obvious uh, Alice in Chains kind of ripoff because they even got Toby Wright, who was an Alice in Chains producer. But what's interesting is at that point, I mean, I, I am a big fan of those grunge bands, but you could make the argument in 95, 96, grunge was pretty much, well, grunge was definitely not as popular as it was in 91, 92. Because by that point, Nirvana was no more, Pearl Jam wasn't really touring, Alice in Chains wasn't touring, and Soundgarden was just on the verge of uh, splitting up. So it would have made more sense for them to do it maybe like one or two years earlier, not in 1996. You know, that was that, that was kind of a strange uh, move, I thought, on uh, their part. Yeah, all those delays of having children and getting married in 93 and the sidetrack for the tribute album um, mm. really, really put them behind. So they hopped yeah. on that bandwagon a little bit too late. But, uh, you know, for that matter, I'm just happy that album eventually came out because uh, it, it was a close thing. Was there any of these albums that was actually a, a difficult for you to do because you're just not into the album? Well, I mean, I've got to say Carnival isn't one of my favorites because the reason why I don't care for it that much is it doesn't sound like Kiss is really being very uh, true to themselves. It seems like they're following again rather than leading. Um, Crazy Nights for me is a little difficult just because it's a very, very like pop production that hasn't really held up very well. Uh, Hot in the Shade, the just the material, it, it's such a long album that if they trimmed off some songs, it would have made it stronger. And uh, again, it was, uh, you know, the, the leading rather than, excuse me, the, the following rather than, rather than leading, there's that song called uh, Re Read My Body, which is an obvious ripoff of, uh, of uh, Pour Some Sugar On Me. You know, so that's difficult to listen to. And the two songs on the Smashers, Thrashers, Hits album, th those, that, that's just garbage to me. I have to, <laughs> I have to be yeah. honest. I like those two songs. It's just, I mean, that one song is a total ripoff of uh, Robert Palmer. Uh, oh, Addicted to Love? Yes, yes. I think that uh, Let's Put the X in Sex, it's the same drum feel and the same beat. Yeah, it's just, to me, I, I just think that was, a, that was a major error on their part. They, they should have been more true to themselves at that point. 
Yep. You know what? It, and today's the anniversary, you know, that we're speaking is the anniversary of that album coming out. Um, and of course, Mitch has been posting and he did, uh, some writing in your book about that yes. Smash's yes. album, didn't he? So yes. it's just, just nice to tie that all, all together. But you know what? I, I still think, and people say it, they should have put Sorted Stone out. You know, some of those leftover tracks from Crazy Nights are still better than the two that ended up on that album, which is yep. a, a shame, really. And of course, Beth, yeah. we, we don't talk about Beth with Eric Carr ever. Yeah, I was going to say there's a whole chapter in this book, or not a chapter, there's a whole section in this book in which Bruce talks about all the uh, material that didn't make Crazy Nights, because it seems like out of all the Kiss albums, Crazy Nights had the most material that did not wind up making the cut, and yeah, something that Bruce, Bruce totally agrees with what you said, that Sword in the Stone should have made it, and I agree, it was definitely better than some of the songs on that, you know, that, that wound up making the cut, so yeah, it's... I think what it was was uh, Ron Nevison, for some reason, did not think that song was good. So it didn't make the cut. But I disagree, and Bruce disagrees, and a lot of people seem to also disagree. A lot of us fans disagree, but there you go. The bands make the decisions, and, uh, you know, we get what we get. We get to discuss, you, you know, I think fans are going to be excited with your book because it doesn't bludgeon them with mm. minutia. It you know, travels along at a really nice pace. It's got a lot of really interesting people who, you know what? You're going to recognize the names of these contributors and these interviewees. And I think it adds to the story of the 80s in a respectful manner. Um, mm. So congratulations on that. Congratulations on I, – I love the packaging on it as well, for that matter. Um, yeah. I think it's very, very well designed, very well put together. Uh, it's the right size to be carrying around. And you know what? You can flip it open. And pretty much start from the page that you open. It's that sort of book. It's not you don't have to start at the beginning. You don't have to read it sequentially. You can just open up and go, which is a great way to have any kiss book. Was that something that you planned deliberately in the way you structure these? Yeah, I, I kind of did have a feeling that that was the way it was going to be because, like I said, for each album we have uh, two people speaking, then we have the tour behind that album, and then like one or two other little bits. Yeah, so I mean, I pretty much knew. After maybe putting together one or two parts, I, I saw that it was definitely going to be that type of book that you could just open it up at any part and pick up something. You put it down, you know, pick it up two days later and just open up to any other part. and You'd be able to, you know, learn something. And it's not like you have to read it from start to finish to really uh, make heads or tails of it. So before we wrap up, what question haven't I asked you that you think I should have asked you? What about the uh, rumored uh, late '80s reunion of the Kiss uh, of, of the Kiss Unmasked lineup? That was, mm, that was that would have been 1989-ish. That was circulating think, in yeah. in the press, and they were doing right. a little bit of a back and forth. I remember Ace was quoted, "Well, what about the late '80s rumored reunion of the Unmasked lineup or the Mass lineup?" Yeah, I interviewed uh, several people about that, including you and. Uh, a lot of people, and I, I even I even asked Bruce, and uh, Bruce said that he did. He said at that point in uh, Kiss's history, uh, Gene and Paul Warf speak. That, excuse me, Gene and Paul Warf speaking to Ace a lot. So he said maybe there was something going on. You know, Bruce said I'm the out of everyone, he'd probably be the last person to find that you know out if it was true or not because he would have been the one you know wind up uh, getting the old uh, heave ho if uh, <laughs> that was the truth. But uh, I remember hearing that quite a bit at the time, and I've heard over the years. So I think it's probably, I think there probably was at least some kind of talk at that point. Because, of course, it was all about if they were going to make money or not. And I think a Kiss makeup tour at that point would have maybe done better than a non-makeup era tour at that point. But 
that said, it would not have done as well as the 1996 uh, reunion with the uh, four with, with the four members because at that point music changed and the whole I think the whole world was more uh, ready for for the Kiss reunion. No, I would absolutely agree with you. 89 would have been way too early, and mm. then you would have run into grunge emerging, and it would have just gotten buried because it was the t- type of dinosaur rock that right. you know Nirvana and the Melvins and everything that was emerging at that time. Um, Billy Corgan, <laughs> you know, oh, right. was, was a reaction. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Pumpkins were, uh, you know, a, a reaction again, so... Uh, it certainly would not have been the right time. But you know what? I'm sure as a business, they always kept that back door open because they knew that they had that ace card to play at some point in their future. Um, right. So you, you can thrash each other in the press as much as you want because any any press is good press, but right. you keep okay. the communication. Yeah, and also speaking of Ace, I interviewed Ace for this book. He talked about the whole MTV Unplugged uh, taping and also a, re- uh, a record that came out. How was he? I mean, you know, how did he kind of look back at, at that era? You know, here we are 23 years later. He said at that point uh, he wasn't sober yet. So he said it's kind of hard for him to see that now because he doesn't look his best. And he doesn't really he's not really playing his best, which, you know, I could see that as a fan. And uh, to his credit, I mean, now he's you know sober and, uh, you know, just I give him credit that he can see that. So, uh yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's always great to speak Nace. Definitely one of my top journalistic highlights was about 10 years ago doing a, uh, almost hour long face to face, um, interview with him. I think it was for a magazine called Total Guitar Magazine, which is a British publication. And it was at the, uh, Gibson, uh, pl- uh, place. I forget where it was in the city, but it was someplace in uh, Manhattan. And it was great just being able to speak to him for a full hour, you know, just because, I've been such a fan of his work. But, yeah, I've interviewed Ace over the years five or six or seven times, and it's uh, always great speaking with Ace. Well, you've mentioned uh, two of the surviving Kiss guitarists. Uh, let's um, – the third, Vinny, did you approach him? No, um, no I, I, I'm just going to leave it at no. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, let, let's give you the final word on, on this. You know, what's uh, what's next for Greg Prado? Where are you going? What are you working on? And your final words about this book. Well, uh, when I'm done with this interview, I'm going to go uh, buy some sushi. Then I'm going Sounds to... No, no, no. I'm sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't resist that. Um, I just actually put out a self-published book called Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story. Because I have to say one of my favorite all-time bands is definitely Soundgarden. And, uh, in fact, uh, I'm going to walk over here, show you, you can see the Kiss uh, Elder poster behind me, and then right next to it is a Soundgarden poster, you see that? Real nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I have a uh, book um, that just came out called Dark, Black, and Blue, The Soundgarden Story, because over the years I've interviewed, I was lucky to interview all the Soundgarden members, past and present for a variety of websites, magazines, and also previous books of mine. I did a book of about 10 years ago called Grunge is Dead, which uh, talks about the whole grunge uh, history. So I had a lot of those uh, quotes from that I was able to use. And I've also interviewed Kim, their guitarist, many times over the years. And I also did a bunch of um, exclusive interviews for this book with Phil Anselmo from Pantera, uh, Matt Pinfield, Marky Ramone, uh, a bunch of other people. Because uh, what's funny enough is Soundgarden, I thought, was by far the best grunge band, but there's not much as far as books about them. So I really thought that the time was right, especially with Chris Cornell's uh, sad, sad and also very tragic passing 
just to, and, and for me, just as a fan, it's very hard for me just to comprehend that and to just accept Chris's passing. So it was almost like a way of me to, for me to become at peace with it a little bit, just to write about it and go back and talk about my memories of seeing Soundgarden and what the music meant to me and just hearing what also he had to say in past um, interviews. So I think their story is finally told. Again, the book is called Dark, Black, and Blue, the story, uh, excuse me, Dark, Black, and Blue, the Soundgarden story, which is available uh, through Amazon. And also Amazon has a pre-order currently set up for the Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked book. One question, actually, um, before we go. Kindle edition, are there any plans for that? I know people have been asking for whether there will be any ebook edition of this uh, book. Yes, there will definitely be a Kindle edition, and that will be made available for purchase the day that the book comes out. Fantastic. Well, Greg, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Um, you know, I think everyone's going to enjoy the book, and hopefully they do, and you get positive feed feedback about it. So, so thanks for joining, and uh, we'll have to talk again soon. Yes, thanks again, Julian. And again, thank you for being interviewed for the book. I think you said some very good things in the book as well. You you, you talked about what? Would, would you want to tell everybody? Go ahead. What uh, was the, well, what well was here's the, the thing. Here's the thing. When the book arrived, when the advance arrived in the post, I'd actually forgotten that I'd uh, done something with it. Uh, oh. So, unmasked. <laughs> um, not unmasked. What am I talking about? Uh, unplugged. You know, yes, the exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, talked about unplugged and you had some very good things to say that uh, about that whole that whole era. So, well, thank you, for, uh, you know, for inviting me to do so. You know, once I see who else is in there, you know, Kurt and Eddie, um, I'm very happy to be a, a part of one of your books with that sort of cast of characters. It's, uh, you know, it, it, I get a real kick out of that. So um, thanks again for joining us and all the best. Great. Thank you, Julian. Thank you for spending time listening to the Kiss FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.